Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. There's just one rookie on the 2023 MotoGP grid, Augusto Fernandez, and without wanting to be too negative about Augusto Fernandez, I don't think anyone's expecting him to change the future of MotoGP particularly. But over the coming years, there's a pretty huge list of future star names waiting to get onto the grid, and that's certainly the impression that we've now got after we asked you, listeners of the Race MotoGP podcast, to nominate the riders you thought would make it into MotoGP by 2030, and we got pretty well inundated with responses, or at least uh, we had a very big list, and I checked the sheet again, and Val had added many, many more, and we've so we've got uh, nearly 30 young riders to talk about in the course of this podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Beer, I'm joined by Valentin Harunchi and Simon Patterson. And as we've got so many riders to get through, I'm going to keep the intros brief and just summarise that Val and Simon are both ill and it's Simon's birthday, which I think is all you need to know about their personal lives on, on this occasion. And we should get straight into it. We, um, listeners, thank you so much for all the voice notes and emails and social media replies to both this question and the question B, which we're going to hopefully get time for as well and we'll come to later. Uh, we really appreciate the kind comments, the input. It's just it's lovely to know that there's many thousands of you listening in and uh, not hating us, which is good. So we're going to start with... There's a, there's a few very obvious contenders on the list of riders who should get into MotoGP in the next seven seasons. And probably the rider outside MotoGP who's been talked about in the context of MotoGP future most in recent years is uh, former World Superbike King top rack Razgatlioglu. Uh, so we should definitely go to him quickly. Now, Val or Simon, who wants to go first on both whether you think top rack would fit in well in MotoGP and what the realistic chances are of that happening? Go on, Go for it, Val. So I'm going to do a great podcast thing and refer back to a past piece of content that 99.9% of people won't remember. But we did a we did sort of like a, a young rider draft for fun last year, uh, four rounds of four riders each, and Razgatlioglu was the third name off the board behind Pedro Costa and Ayagura. I don't think he's like if we did it again this year. I don't think he'd be as high as third. I think there is the general suspicion and feeling that the train might be slowly but surely leaving the station, or at least that's that's the feeling I have. Uh, because ev- with every year, you know, it's the same thing as with the Jonathan Ray thing, is the longer you stick around in World Superbikes, the more pot committed you are to that series, the more seismic a switch would be, and the more risky it would be compared to what you already have going in World Superbike that ensures you have gainful employment for years and years and years to come. That said, we also did hear uh, Toprak at the end of last year suggest when visiting the MotoGP Valencia finale, I think it was not the test, I think it was the finale, that he was now more open to a MotoGP switch than before. And maybe a season of getting stomped by Alvaro Bautista's straight line speed demon Ducati will do that to you. Which is again going to happen this year by the looks of it. Spoilers to anybody who hasn't seen the Phillip Island opener results in World Superbike. Bautista won all three of those races and would have won 50 more if they held 50 more. <laughs> so yeah, maybe that'll inspire Toprak to consider his options. 
I don't see room at the end at Yamaha, particularly if I'm being honest, even if Yamaha has talked about potentially putting him straight to the factory team. Uh, maybe there's some other avenues to explore. I don't know. I think his chance is gone now. Um, I think he's waited too long and that's going to bite him. If if there was ever the intention to make a MotoGP switch, um, you know, if there was ever truly the intention, because a lot of the time listening to his manager, Keenan Safoglu, it wasn't completely certain that there actually was the intention to make that switch. Um, Keenan seemed quite happy to keep top rack where he was doing what he's doing. And when you look at the MotoGP grid right now, you know, we, we talked in the podcast a few weeks ago about uh, rumours linking the the current second Yamaha seat of Franco Morbidelli to Jorge Martin. If you're a factory Yamaha and you're faced with a guy who's never rode a MotoGP bike before apart from one day of testing versus a guy who was on the podium and pole position in a second race, you're going to take Jorge Martin. Um, and, and this is, you know, this is the problem with MotoGP these days. You can't, can't be a rider demanding things of a factory because the factory will just find someone else. They'll move on without you. Um, his only alternative, realistically, that I see from Factory Yamaha is to go satellite team because there isn't any other factory that's going to come knocking on his door. Um, and him and, and his manager have expressed repeatedly that they'll only go to MotoGP for a factory seat, which is the exact same mistake that Jonathan Ray made 10 years ago. And it cost him a chance to ever be a MotoGP rider. Um, you know, everyone else is in contract until the end of 24. Um, we're coming into new two-year deals. And he's looking to come in out of place of those deals. There's not many factory seats available. And yeah, I, I think the boat has sailed. Yeah, I, I just I don't think in modern MotoGP, you're as a factory in a position to just bring in a rider from World Superbike, give him a go. I don't like... You know, that thing of uh, Troy Bayless showing up out of Superbikes and just winning as a wild card, that's not happening these days. For, like, in, in a similar situation, you finish 15th and that's a win. So, you know, just betting on that adaptation. And that's, you know, that's even before we get to the, the funny bit. Jorge Martini's younger than Toprak Razgatlioglu, but already MotoGP proven. It's, it's not a difficult choice. So that's, you know, there's an appeal to Toprak. There's a certain name recognition maybe somebody will talk themselves into it maybe there's a marketing appeal there and he is you know he's obviously a very good rider but i just if i'm a pragmatic MotoGP team boss factory boss i, I don't get it i don't really see it so val do you think that is saying that it's not such much so much a question of circumstances and that top rack's timing is wrong his management haven't made pulled the right cards here this is just that top rack wouldn't be decent enough for MotoGP after this long in Superbikes? Is his style not sorted, suited to it? No, I mean, he might be good. Uh, the noise from the test was okay. I mean, the noise from tests is never really bad, but, it you know, it sounded all right. It's just, it's like, why would you gamble like that when there are other gambles you can take? When there's uh, an absurd conveyor belt of younger and younger riders from Spain? I... We're going to get to him in a second, but obviously there was a report very recently from uh, SpanishMotorsport.com and Yuri uh, Puigdemont. Oh my God, I've worked with the man and I don't know how to pronounce his surname. That's really bad. <laughs> so I apologize there. But yeah, 
Oh, and you know, he, he knows what he's talking about. And he's saying that Yamaha has seriously looked at Alonso Lopez and has met with Alonso Lopez the end of last year. Alonso Lopez being the sudden surprise breakout star of the Moto2 season last year. That makes more sense to me than Top Rack. Alonso Lopez is younger. He's going through a more familiar pathway. Again, he's younger. And if you decide that he doesn't work, there are 1,700 other Spanish riders who are slightly younger than him <laughs> who have done something of note that might convey into, into MotoGP stardom. That's a very good link through to talk about Moto2 title hopefuls, MotoGP prospects for the future, and our first little audio clip. So this is from listener Lazu Ferdaus, who also nominated Alonso Lopez. Fermin Aldegar and Alonso Lopez, you know, they can do well with the bike, not Kalex bike in Moto2 with Kalex dominant bike and both of them is teammate slash rival they always compete each other first and second in obviously in FIM Junior in 2021 and Alonso Lopez is on Yamaha radar thanks for that Lazio Simon what's your take on Alonso Lopez I think we need to see a little bit more of him um, I think we haven't seen enough yet to make me convinced that he's the next, next big thing. Um, simply because uh, six months before he was the next big thing, his teammate, Fermin Aldegar, who we're going to come to in a minute, was the next big thing. Um, and it, it, it it's a bit of a splash in the pan in terms of results right now. It's not been a consistent season. It's also hard to gauge someone who's riding a speed up. Yeah. Because there's only one other speed up and it's Aldegar. Um, yeah, it, it's going to take a bit more time before we can fully establish whether or not he's the real deal. This season will help, but for me, if he's going to have a MotoGP, a solid MotoGP, like a factory MotoGP future, then he needs to be podiuming consistently throughout this year instead of just you know these one or two amazing results and then disappearing for a few races again, the way that we, we tended to see a little bit last season. Yeah, I mean, ultimately... Uh... Aldeguer is four year young, four years younger. His his speed up teammate Fermin yeah. Aldeguer, and was initially you know the talk of the MotoGP town last season when he was vastly outperforming uh, Romano Fanati, who got canned, got replaced by Alonso Lopez at speed up because speed up is extremely ruthless when it comes to its riders, uh, to the point where it bothers the the MotoGP rider community and starts up talks about you know rider contract protection and stuff like that. But that's you know that's for another. For another day. Um, I think, honestly, Simon, I think you've downplayed just how well Alonso Lopez did last season. But I, I, I understand it because he came into 2022 having lost the European Moto2 title battle, which is a different championship, different Moto2 championship, not MotoGP adjacent Spanish, I think. Yeah. Even though it's called European. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fermin Aldeguer won that one. But... Alonso Lopez, I think, was the best Moto2 rider on the grid last season. Uh, I think the, the races that he did do, the points don't quite work out, but if he's a full season, like he's at least a title contender. If he's full season, he was completely new to it. I think he was routinely, regularly exceptional and got better as the season wore on. He still needs to show more because those kind of things happen in Moto2. Uh, if... If that variance in form didn't didn't happen, then Augusto Fernandez would have been a MotoGP rider three years ago instead of now. But Augusto Fernandez did the exact same Alonso Lopez thing where he showed up, he briefly looked like the absolute best Moto2 rider. That plateaued for a bit. Uh, we have to see whether something like that might happen to 
Alonso Lopez too, but that's not to take anything away from his 2022, which again, I think was exemplary. So the, the most popular nomination among the Moto2 riders this year was Pedro Acosta, perhaps unsurprisingly. And absolutely loads of people predicting with great confidence that he'll be a MotoGP rider in the future. Among them, Robert from Austria, Cosmin from Romania, Elisa from Finland, John from Stafford, Dan from North Yorkshire, and Lazu also put a hand up for him. Pedro Acosta obviously has, has been someone we've talked about a great deal. How soon do you see him getting to MotoGP after last season? So... There's this. There was this weird admission I've read from KTM that they feel they've rushed along certain certain talents into MotoGP, and that that will inform their their thinking of Pedro Costa, which might mean that they'll try to keep him in in Moto2 for a couple more years rather than just this next year, which is good to protect their new recruit Augusto Fernandez, but it's also like that's a lot of years in a sense. Um, I just I don't understand that general logic because I'd like to it, I, it is informed by the failures of Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez as KTM prospects in MotoGP, but I'd love to know what they think would have happened if they held Raul Fernandez for another season in MotoGP when he had his head turned by another manufacturer, like uh, yeah, for another season in Moto2. My bad. So if they hold him there. Uh, and then they bring him into MotoGP when maybe instead of Yamaha, he wants Aprilia or whatever it is he, he would have wanted at that point. I'm not sure how that would have fixed things. I'm not sure how you look at Raul Fernandez's Moto2 form and go, well, he's not ready for MotoGP. We made a mistake rather than there was just something different fundamentally wrong there. Um, so I don't think that should put him off promoting Pedro Costa as soon as they can because he was already really good last season. A bit patchy, bit of rookie, you know, sort of learning the ropes clearly. Got injured midway through, so lost valuable experience there. But towards the end, you could already tell that, you know, he's, he's becoming a permanent Moto2 frontrunner. And I don't think he's going to need two seasons of being that. Like, again, he seems to have a patient head in his shoulders, so that might be fine. But I, I always remember Jean Mir saying... One Moto2 season is enough if you got a good MotoGP ride. And John Mir was rewarded by a MotoGP title a couple of years after that. And like, you can't not think of that. No, the precedents for getting Moto2 done quickly and moving up are pretty good, really, aren't they? In terms of how what's happened yeah, to really Riley's good. career since then. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird balance, that, isn't it? It has always traditionally been a thing where you need to blow through there. But that's always because MotoGP has been obsessed with youth. And it kind of feels like we've got to a point now where we've been obsessed with you for so long that we have such a young grid (laughs) that that's going to have to change and it's going to have to slow down and people are going to have to spend a bit more time there. Because otherwise you're going to end up doing things like we saw at the end of 2022 where you're kicking like 23-year-old reigning Moto2 champions off the grid to make room for a 23-year-old reigning Moto2 champion. Um, and, And that's just not helping anyone. Um, it's not helping the factories to develop. It's not helping the riders to develop. It's not good for the long-term future of the sport. Um, and I think that, yeah, we're, we're going to see a bit of a change in how that plays out. And that's going to be beneficial probably to everyone, actually, because it does no harm for those guys to have a few more years in Moto2. I agree that a, a period of stagnation is probably coming, but I you know, I still expect Pedro Acosta to be one of the final ones to get through the door before yeah. that stagnation happens. Uh, and, you know, anyway, like a difference between a wider trend and a single supernova talent, I think is, it's, you know, it's quite meaningful too. 
And also, I just kind of get it. Like, I don't like how KTM treated Remy, Remy Gardner. I obviously like Remy Gardner as a rider. But I, as somebody who's sort of grown up watching motorsports, familiarizing himself with the way Red Bull operated with its F1 talents and just, you know, this conveyor belt and only only wanting the very, very, very best of the best, not really bothering too much with long development times. Just, you know, they either have it or they don't. And that's the decision. That, that works. Like, it works sometimes. It's not great. It's not particularly pleasant, but it's very often gets the job done. Now, MotoGP is a bit weirder, I think, when it comes to that. You're going to have Fabio Quartararo go from the absolute best talent around to basically forgotten to the savior of Yamaha. And... But that's also an argument to try more and more and more and more guys. Yeah, Cotterara's career trajectory is so ridiculous that it makes this debate completely redundant because we may as well suggest a few people who looked good two years ago and are currently now bobbling along in 17th in Moto2 and are going to you know, save a future MotoGP team. Um, the second most popular shout from Moto2 after Pedro Acosta was Jake Dixon, so who has had a, a bit of a MotoGP flirtation already, of course. But uh, what, how do you two rate his chances of getting there properly? Oh, silence. That doesn't quite well, does it? <laughs> um, for me, the, the problem that Jake Dixon has is that I would have thought he was on a trajectory to a MotoGP ride simply because there is an almost overwhelming pressure from Dorna to ensure that there are British riders in the grid. Um, and I think that helped push certainly helped push Dixon into the MotoGP seat that he got for a few rounds in 2021 whenever Yamaha were going through all sorts of chaos and he got a chance to to jump at the Patronus Yamaha um but I think his biggest risk right now is the fact that there are other fast British riders in the pipeline who are not necessarily I don't want to call them faster but they've been brought up through the Grand Prix system instead of the Superbike system. And people in the Grand Prix paddock will always favour riders who've come up through the Grand Prix paddock. So theoretically, the biggest risk to Jake Dixon's chances of getting a MotoGP ride right now is probably the, the good form of Scott Ogden in Moto3 as a rookie and what's expected to be a relatively successful year for Scott this year, plus the, the likes of uh, other stronger kids or other strong kids like Kissy Gorman coming through the ranks, who I know technically isn't British, he's Irish, but it's the same TV channel that broadcasts in both countries, so that'll keep Dorna happy. <laughs> um, and, and I think maybe Dixon is just a little bit out of time in terms of getting a MotoGP ride now. Um, it really needed to have happened last year, uh, coming into this season. Um and it could have as well if he'd had a, a strong championship year. Um, but he was fast but inconsistent, which has kind of been Jake's problem as long as he's been in MotoGP or Moto2, sorry. Um, yeah, I think he's out of time. That's, I guess that's, that's sort of my feeling as well. He's, I thought he really impressed me last season. I thought he was really, really quite... Like he was reached a higher Moto2 level than I maybe feared was, was a ceiling. And it suggests to me that he still might kick on further this season and there is still time to ward off those Scott Ogdens and Casey O'Gormans but there's also like there's no obvious door open and I'm 
I don't know how how strong the the British rider pressure is. Uh, and I, it's just like, how well does he need to do this season to really force the issue? And how, like, again, he's also part of the sort of the KTM system, isn't he? He's at Gas Gas Aspar. Yeah. So what, how does, what does Jake Dixon need to do to leapfrog what Pedro Acosta is not happening? Uh, what, Isan Guevara, maybe, we'll get to him in a second. Uh, it's tough. I don't like, I don't see an obvious there's no obvious route for basically anybody who isn't already embedded in some way somewhere, if that makes any sense. Especially now that we've lost two extra bikes on the grid. Yeah, that, that's like that's one of the fundamental issues that everyone here is facing, isn't it? The fact that there's two less bikes. You mentioned that it helps to be embedded somewhere already. Well, let's look at Celestino Vietti, who is probably the top VR46 Valentino Rossi Academy person coming through now. How much is he knocking on the door of a, a VR46 MotoGP ride, do you think? Silence and facial expressions. They've there's, there's, there's sort of nodded a little bit and wiggled their heads a little bit. So I'm, I'm sorry, Celestino. It's Masters of audio content. Yeah, it, it, it's been met with a sort of, nah, I would say. Yeah, he's trying to come into a team that's already stacked with good riders. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the problem. And I think in a world where there is a bit of a Ducati reshuffle and we potentially see Marco Bezzecchi, I think is the favourite, moving up through the ranks. Say say Johan Zarco retires at the end of his contract or decides it's time to go to Superbike and wins a few championships there because he's one of the older guys in the grid, the oldest guy in the grid, I think. Um, if that happens... Ducati, I think, will try and move Bezeki into Pramac. And then we'll see, you know, some sort of a weird shake-up where Franco Morbidelli gets kicked out of Yamaha and ends up at VR46 Ducati. Uh, and that's the... I think that's the... the Rossi's not going to let Morbidelli fall out of MotoGP this early. That is a really good point that I always forget whenever Frankie's situation gets brought up. Yeah. I mean, the, the other option as well, let's not forget, is that the Zarco doesn't go anywhere... Yamaha take Jorge Martin and then Bezeki goes to Pramac and, and Morbidelli replaces him at VR46. I could see that being a realistic option as well. And that makes it difficult for me to see a path into VR46 Ducati for anyone really. Um, because Luca Marini is going to be there for a few more years. He's performing well. He's fast. You know, why would he get booted out? There's no reason for it. Um, yeah, which isn't ideal if you're Celestino Vietti, but unfortunately, that's the breaks. I think I think sooner or later, we are going to see Vietti in that VR46 team. I just think it's going to be later, like Simon. Uh, like the it's There's not really a clear rider that he's massively threatening to unseat right now, so there, there, there have to be outside events that make room. Or his Moto2 season has to be so good that somebody else goes in yeah. for him, which... This past year's Moto2 season briefly threatened like being, but I think it was always fairly obvious that early season form was a bit of a a bit of a mirage, it, and it was then brutally course corrected by a, a late season slump that I think also was a little bit of a mirage. 
like the real Celestino Vieti. Wow, that was a terrible pronunciation of that. The real Celestino Vieti is somewhere in the middle. And I'm a hero for refusing to re-record that bit because certain other people in this podcast have been doing the third and fourth take of every line. That's not completely true. I'd like to correct that and say that I've done second takes of basically every line I've said in this podcast so far. And some of them, I've got a slight pronunciation excuse, some of it I've just proved incapable of talking. So apologies to listeners and producer Johnny for that. Um, I'll leave all the rest of my mistakes in. Okay, from now on, deal? (laughs) So, uh, where were we? Vietti. Vietti was suggested by Elisa and Dan. Um, one of Elisa's other suggestions is to- Tony Arbolino. And she says, I feel like Tony Arbolino will have a shot at MotoGP in the future. Time will tell, but I think he's fast and young and still has time to develop. What do you two reckon to that? And let's do it with words, not facial expressions. <laughs> yeah, no, Arbolino had a really good season last season. Generally, is following a pretty great trajectory. Just, you know, it's a question of fit. It's a question where where he goes in. I'm looking at last year's draft again, and I'm seeing that we, you know, we had Paolo Yanieri from Gazzetta della Sport, and he drafted two Italians out of his four drafted, and they were Tony Alvarino and Celestino Vietti. Yeah, he, he knows what's up, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. There should be room at some point for Tony Arbolino. It's just a question of whether he sort of remains on that title contender periphery for a couple more years. And then we sort of figure out whether there's an opportunity for him to latch on to because I don't know how beatable guys like Pedro Costa are in a, in a straight fight. We'll see. You know, he's a very good rider. Very interesting. There's three big things that work in Tony Arbolino's favor, uh, the way I see it, that, that makes him pretty much assumed to be a more GP rider in the future, actually. Uh, one is that he is very talented. Um, there's no question in that. He had a really good Moto2 season, and I think he's going to have another really good Moto2 season. The other thing is that he is a personality. He's a real character. He's a real funny kid. He sells himself really well. He's good value. He's good entertainment. And the third is that he's managed by Carlo Pernat, um, who is the oldest, craziest wheeler dealer on the grid <laughs> in terms of rider management. And, you know, you have to think that in a world where at the end of his current contract, Fabio Dugentonio is still the, the, one of the Ducati riders who are struggling the most, that Carlo Pernat comes along and says, hey, look, I gave you an Italian rider who no one really had that much of a, you know, no one expected huge things from. You put him into your team at Grissini, and he won you four races in a season in his second year. Let's sign my guy. Um, you know the 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 good uh, the good credit that Pranat has earned with promoting Bastinini so quickly and doing such a good job with Bastinini will help Arbolino in the long run. Um, like I said, coupled with the fact that he's he's talented. There's a very obvious one which we've deliberately not talked about yet because it's too obvious among the Moto2 title hopefuls and that is Ayagura who unless something really bizarre happens we all assume will be replacing Takanakagami at LCR Honda in 2024. Anyone got any reason to expect that won't happen particularly having seen the shape of Nakagami's hand in pre-season testing? Uh, Some sort of a wild Ayagura implosion (laughs) Um, is the only thing I see getting in the way there where he just falls apart this year and is completely unable to do anything like he did last year. Um, but that's a long shot. I think that's, you know. Even if he's like seventh or eighth, I still have a go, I think, in MotoGP just to know. 
just to know what you have on him on yeah. a on a big bike. Or that's what I would do. Yeah, maybe maybe unless he has an implosion and uh, his teammate Sunkit Chantra wins the championship. That is correct. That's the you know it's going to take something like that. Um, I think he'd have to be conclusively beaten by another Honda Team Asia rider for that seat to go anywhere else. So Val, you did put Chantra on this list of riders with with a shot at a MotoGP future, which I thought was was a really intriguing little shout, actually. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking. Well, I'm you know I'm gonna be a bit maybe condescending here and say marketing. I think probably having a MotoGP rider from that part of the world is obviously advantageous. But also, you know, that's not to take away from the fact that Somkiat Chantra had a really good season last year. Really made a huge step forward, looked a genuine victory contender in multiple races. Um, I don't know what his ceiling is, honestly, because that 2022 sort of came out of nowhere for me. I think other people who watch closely will have seen it coming. I didn't. So I'm sort of, I'm left picking up the pieces and only judging on what I've really seen last year. And I liked what I've seen last year. And I think that coupled with the, the marketing considerations would, would make some sense. Yeah. I, I never find marketing considerations offensive if the rider's shown a ton of interesting potential along the way. It's, it's semi-brutal, but it is important that, that the motorsports we like have fans around the world. You know, yeah. the, the, the more you're widening exposure, the more, the, the stronger every part of motorsport is getting so yeah choosing someone unprepared because they're from a handy country for tv audience and stuff is obviously not a good move but no i, f- I find the idea of chantra getting towards MotoGP very inoffensive and and quite sensible really yeah i just i he sh- he must do more i should say that at, at this point not quite yet he must do more but yeah yeah we're, we're not looking at 2024 but in, you know we're looking kind of next four or five years he it's no secret that there are riders on the Grand Prix grid who pay to be there. And if that paying to be there is Dorna paying for them to be there so that it increases the reach of the sport in parts of the world, I'd rather have that than have, you know, another Spanish rider paying to be there because it's easy to get big sponsorship in Spain. I'd rather, you know, if, if we're always going to have paying riders, we might have, I might as well have a bit of diversity about them. And th- that applies more to Moto2 and Moto3, obviously, than MotoGP, but it's all part of the route to the top, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't argue with any of that. There's, there's one more established Moto2 person who's been suggested, and Val, I hope you don't mind me quoting your actual note about Aaron Canet, but it was, Aaron Canet feels rude to ignore him. Yeah. I mean, because I, I looked at the list and I'm like, well, where's Aaron? We didn't put Aaron on there. Nobody, and I, I don't think any of the readers brought up Aaron Kinnett, which no. is honestly, uh, to whoever's reading this and has a device next to him, go check Aaron Kinnett's championship finish record and it will feel like disrespect, I think. Um, <laughs> he is like, you know, it's easy to form narratives about riders in your head and the Aaron Kinnett narrative is that he refuses to win moto two races and will not do it even if he's the single the, the sole person on the grid he'll just like you won't do it yeah this so you just you just accuse listeners of disrespect for not nominating him but you'll set your notes about Kana on our on our sheet are feels rude to ignore and win a goddamn race oh now now everybody knows i've got a mouth on me so that's <laughs> that's a revelation but yeah look no disrespect first of all i should say aaron Kanat had a car crash last season that 
clearly compromised him for a stretch and just sounded really, really scary and unpleasant. And he was riding with like nosebleeds and stuff, which shouldn't happen and sounds not great. And even amid, amid all that, I think his campaign was pretty good. He was there or thereabout in the mix. I think if you rerun that season a few times, maybe one of them, Aaron Kinnett, wins the wins the championship. He certainly wins a race. Um, I, It's just there's no extra factor to him, like an obvious reason why he wouldn't be on the grid. He's not attached to a current MotoGP team or factory, I don't think. He's not, he doesn't have a particularly interesting passport unless you find Spanish passports in MotoGP very interesting, which you don't. Um, but he's a good rider, man. I don't know. Uh, he could win Moto2 one of these days. And when you win Moto2, history suggests you get to MotoGP. We should uh, look at some of the rookies in Moto2 as well. There are quite a few suggestions there. There's a, there's a very obvious one who's, who's, uh, extremely highly rated at the moment who we've talked about a fair bit and that is Izan Guevara suggested by Elisa Lachlan and Dan Val you don't waste a chance to get excited about Guevara have a chance to get excited about Guevara basically 99.9% of things he did in Moto3 last season were a complete delight start to finish <laughs> he, was, he was box office and wonderful to watch uh, I do get excited about riders wrongly sometimes uh, I really liked watching Lorenzo Della Porta on, on route to the Moto3 title and that hasn't come through in Moto Moto2 unfortunately. Um, I don't think Izan Guevara is going to be that case because beyond the Moto3 explosion, he also, he had a really good rookie Moto3 season before that. He won the, uh, what is now the Junior GP, used to be the SEV Spanish Moto3 championship. And I think that same year was also a title contender in Red Bull rookies, maybe the other way around. Maybe he won, no, I don't think he won both. But anyway, he was definitely in title contention for both of those against Pedro Acosta. Honestly, he's very close to being also that kind of rider. I guess a lot of questions as to how his Moto2 adaptation goes, because you just never know. But he looks a sure thing to me. Yeah, there's not much to add to that. The kid is super, super talented. Um, he's in the right factory program now. And if he's not a MotoGP rider in a few more years' time, then I don't see who else is going to be a MotoGP rider. Because it's, it's Pedro Costa and then it's him in terms of who need to be the hot properties. Another Moto2 rookie who did get a nod from listeners, though, is Dennis Foggia, who was suggested by uh, Nick088 on social media. Any thoughts on Foggia's chances? Uh, age might be a problem, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's like it, so it depends on the speed of Moto2 adaptation because time isn't on his side. Uh, clearly a quality rider, no question about it. You don't run out front in Moto3 that often you don't have the kind of races that he does like we've seen a, a few races with Foggio he's just gone just disappears up the road uh but I think yeah I think age might be a problem so we'll see I'm just checking what his age is because quite often in these conversations I we, we mention someone and one or both of you goes no way too old and then I'm like seriously he's 22 which okay given the age of some of the people who've got into MotoGP I, I do see your point but it is interesting to be to be writing off a 22-year-old who's got a you know, very decent Moto3 record. <laughs> Often when I say age, I mean number of years spent in like MotoGP paddock age, which is a, a different thing to actual age, which is maybe stupid for me on my point part. But you, like you see what I mean. He's been around long enough to where perceptions have formed, if that makes any sense. My worry about Dennis Fudge's future 
is more to do with um, precedent than anything else. There's been an awful lot of Leopard Honda riders who've been really, really fast in Moto3 and then have went to Moto2 and done absolutely nothing. And we need to see what he's capable of. You know, he he could go to Moto3, he could go to Moto2 and he could be Juan Mayer or he could go to Moto2 and he could be Lorenzo Dallaporta. And we have to see which one of those he's going to be this year before we can before we can make statements about where what his future holds. No, that's a that's a good point. That's a really good point. But I I guess I would counter that by saying that he was a very dominant Spanish Moto three champion, which is usually a really good sign for who you are. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. You're completely right. Let's move on to Moto three. Didn't have as many suggestions from here. Well, obviously, like you say. Until we've seen what they can do in Moto2, it is a lot harder to, to work out if riders have got a MotoGP future. Um, James from Ireland uh, threw in a great list of suggestions. He's got a few others outside the MotoGP system, which we will come to as well. But I'm going to throw in his Moto his three Moto3 ideas, see what you guys think of that. One of which we've mentioned already, and that is Scott Ogden. Uh, James also nominates Joel Calso and Diego Moreri. We'll leave, Johnny, leave this mispronunciation in just, just so this is going to abuse me. Diogo <laughs> Moreira. Let's go with that. Uh, it's just a, this is a very, like, not Spanish because Diego Moreira is races under a Brazilian license. Is he actually, like, Brazilian from Brazil or is he, like, yeah, Spanish? Yeah, yeah, he's Brazilian. He, he's no, probably, no, he's, yeah, 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 he's right. Brazilian from Brazil. Because we have, because we have a, on the Moto3 grid, we have uh, David Alonso, who is uh, Colombian licensed, but Madrid. Born. Yeah. Uh, rider. But yeah, so Diego Moreira is, I think, the best choice out of those three. Looked really convincing in his rookie Moto3 season last year. Looks like he's got some something genuine going on there. And, well, MotoGP could use a South American presence in the in the near future. And, like, if, if there's going to be a guy, this is the guy. Uh, yeah, um, Ogden, we've already talked about. Joel Kelso, I haven't seen enough yet from to, to feel it, really. No, I agree. Uh, Kelso has had his moments, but he's not been anywhere near consistent enough. And he's been in Moto3 long enough now that, you know, yeah. There's a few Aussie kids coming up through the ranks and Red Bull rookies and in some of the support series, uh, Asia Talent Cup, who I think will take Kelso's place before too long in the grid. Uh, another potential Moto3 contender suggested by a couple of people actually is David Munoz um, suggested by both Elisa and Dan now Val you suggested uh, a Munoz title bid this year so would you share their faith long term uh yeah but it's like there's there's this problem it's again and I, I hearken back to the fact there's 59 million young Spanish riders who have been exceptional at one point or another David Munoz is part of that rookie class with uh, Moreira, who we just talked about, and KTM prospect Danny Holgado. Who was also nominated by Elisa as a future potential future motor yeah. GP rider. And and by me. Yes. So but I like which one of them is the real deal? Cause it probability theory suggests it's not all of them. <laughs> so honestly, of that rookie season, I can't tell you. They all had their moments. Uh Weekend to weekend, I think my mind changed on which of them is the most legit out of the three. Uh, maybe if you dive into the data, you can find something to indicate one way or another. But for now, I'm just like, we have to wait and see with those three, with Holgado, with, with Munoz, and with Moreira. But yeah, no, David Munoz maybe a bit aggressive at parts last season, as far as I remember, but good, clearly good. 
the, the problem for me with making assessments about these guys is the Fabio Cotteraro story. Yeah. yeah. Where he was like this ultra-dominant Sev champion who had the MotoGP rules changed just to get rid of him out of Sev before he won like 17 titles by the time he turned 12. Um, <laughs> and then he came to Moto3 and did absolutely nothing for like four years before becoming a MotoGP championship contender and eventual champion out of nowhere. Um, so it, it's just... There is so much going on and so much that can change at this point in these kids' careers that I think we can make educated guesses, but it's really hard to make anything I'd bet my house on for any of them. Also, add a fourth one to that sophomore list. Ivan Ortola was also quite good at certain yeah. points last season. So he also might be something. We like it is honestly it is crazy. <laughs> and it is like it it feels like every time I look at a results sheet of basically any championship, any junior championship, there's a new Spanish guy who catches my attention. And sometimes they have really similar surnames, so I start getting confused. Sometimes they're brothers of one another, so it gets weird. Uh, there's going to be another uh, Spanish Moto3 rookie, very interesting, that I think we're going to mention in a second. But yeah, so out of these four guys, three are Spaniards, one's Brazilian. Uh, watch him in Moto3 this season should be really interesting. I think we'll we'll finally start to see some separation. We'll finally know which one of them is potentially a future superstar. Well, before we get to that other Spanish contender, we're just going to uh, divert nationalities and look at Ayumu Sasaki briefly because that was a suggestion from JLil10146 on social media. Now, this is someone that just through the habit of uh, again getting nationalities that are worth having on the grid on the grid. Sasaki is in a pipeline, effectively. He he kind of is and he isn't because he's fallen out of the, the Honda pipeline that he was in for most of the early part of his career and now find himself on a, on a Husqvarna with you know Austrian backing rather than Japanese backing. But Sasaki has always... We've always known that the kid has been talented. Um, he came into Moto3 at a really young age and he struggled because of it. You know, In some regards... He should be like the the warning for promoting kids too quickly just because they've had a good year in a, a talent cup series. Um, because it took him in the end just as long anyway to find his feet in Moto three. But he absolutely goes into twenty twenty three as a title contender, if not one of the outright title favourites, I'd almost suggest. Um and the fact that he's fast and Japanese and still quite young will all stand him well. Um you know, he, if I was looking at me funny, because I said quite young. Yeah. 22. But 22. But, but I say that in regards to, you know, we need to take this into account where British kids, Japanese kids, Australian kids, American kids come through at a later age. Fair. That has traditionally always been the thing. They don't, they don't come to Moto3 as young as Spanish kids or Italian kids. Um, so that, that still is enough to count in his favor, you know, um, he he can still do two years in Moto2 and come into MotoGP younger than Taka would have been when he came into MotoGP, I think. So there, there's time there. Um, his big thing is probably going to be uh, dependent on how fast or not fast Ayagura is. Um, because if Agura comes into, comes into MotoGP in 2024 and struggles, um, and, you know, we've got, uh, Sasaki like winning every race in Moto2, Honda will try and poach him back. Um, 
No, I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but it's it's another one of those cases where I think his future is dependent on others as much as it's dependent on himself. Well, this is it. Even though he's fallen off Honda's list for now, it was actually quite a good end to the season for him last year insofar as Taka hung on in MotoGP a, a, little, a, a, a little longer than it looks like he should right now. And uh, Agura had that slight meltdown at the end of the Moto2 season, which you know, would raise some question marks about about his future as well, longer term. So Suzaki's not in a terrible position. You know, like you say, Dorna likes to have a Japanese rider on the grid. He's in he's in contention because the other contenders have got big question marks over them. Look, I'll be I'll be thrilled to eat crow about this. Don't see it. Don't think it's happening. Uh Ayumu Suzaki is older than Ayagura, who is already an established Moto two title contender. I don't see it. I don't. I don't see how it's possible. Uh, there are cases in modern MotoGP where you can get to MotoGP after doing seven Moto3 seasons, and Ayumu Sasaki is heading into a seventh. Uh, Darren Binder being an example, but it's not a system for to stay there long term. I don't think. So I don't. I don't really see it, and that's to take nothing away from Ayumu Sasaki's 2022, which I thought was really good. It's really really good. Seven seasons in Moto three, then one in Moto two would be the ultimate example of you just get, have to get Moto two done quickly. Well, we're about to have a, a Moto two rookie with seven seasons of Moto three and one in Moto GP. That being Darren Binder, who has not come up at all in this episode, which because he's been in Moto GP already, he doesn't he doesn't fit the criteria. Yeah, I guess, I guess. Feels both a little harsh, but also I don't know what to say. He, he literally doesn't win. This is not a slight on Darren Binder. We're looking at people who are going to be in MotoGP in the future who haven't yet or who should have been but didn't get to. He's done it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Val, everybody else on the Moto3 list is your suggestion. So who have the listeners and us not suggested so far? You have uh, 45 seconds I've decided to to make your case. Right. Um, Dennis Alton True, I think, is an interesting question mark if, if we want... Like, if we want Turkish representation on the MotoGP grid, and I say we want, like, it's a public referendum, but you know what I mean. By we, I mean the championship. Uh, Denis Onchu has had a decent Moto3 career and is now heading into a pretty great KTM AJ seat that will show whether he's really got that next step or not. He may make more sense than Top Rack. Um, and the other name is well i like i've i've looked at a couple like the aforementioned david alonso from with a colombian license from madrid born he's a very interesting rider jose rueda is joining this season immediately as part of ktm ajo which suggests ktm is quite interested to see what he can do he's very young think 16 or, or 17 he won i think at least two major junior championships last season which is always a good sign uh, across multiple categories that's always that, that always says something uh we'll see about him that's 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 my motor three list <laughs> so apart from top rack almost everybody who was nominated by a listener was within the motor gp system already in motor three and motor two a couple of little exceptions we'll get to quickly before we go on to people who were denied a motor gp chance first one someone who's not there yet but surely will be 2021 british talent cup champion casey o'gorman he's had a quick mention already suggested by james myland how do we rate O'Gorman's chances of being the person who fills that British slash Irish hole on the grid? Yeah, I think there's a there's a good chance he looks fast. He's well looked after because he's managed by former six time British Superbike champion Shaky Byrne, um, which is you know it's it's good to have a former MotoGP rider as your manager if you want to be a MotoGP rider. That's always a helpful thing. 
Um, he is part of the Red Bull program through uh, Rookies Cup. He will, I think, start to make progress through the grid. You know, we're not going to see him coming into Moto Three on a an average slash back of the grid Moto Three bike. If KTM think he, there's something there, we're going to see him placed into one of their decent satellite teams. Um, and then he's got no excuse really not to perform. And if he performs at all, he'll get moved up really rapidly. Um, I'm pretty sure that it makes sense. And our other world card, well, actually, this is a definite world card. O'Gorman is on is on a path, but uh, our actual world card is Ollie Bayliss, son of Troy, uh, suggested by Lachlan from Australia. Now, there was head shaking and there was a, a, a straightaway declaration of too old earlier when we were discussing this. He is 19 at the moment, but he's not he's not in the system as such, is he, right now? Yeah, well, when we say too old, we mean too old for not being in the system. I mean, obviously, any other definition of too old, 19 years old, is ridiculous. But in this, there's just no clear pipeline from World Superbike feeders or even World Superbike to, to MotoGP. It, like, it happens on occasion, but you can count the times on in the last decades on two hands, I think. Just not... Like even if Ollie Bailey's progresses from where he is now in World Supersport, I don't think he's at the front quite, quite at the front yet, or quite anywhere there. And that's a that's a series where the opening round was dominated by Nicola Bulega, 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 who um, you may remember as being a really hotly tipped MotoGP prospect that just massively stalled uh, VR46 prospect, I should say. Um, I don't I don't see Bulega coming back even Bulega what is wrong with me I don't see Bulega coming back if even if he dominates world supersport and I don't I, I just don't see people from there really having a great shot at moving along I mean the harsh reality is Ollie Bayless I know he was a rookie but he finished his first year in world supersport in 16th in the championship he's behind people like Agator he's behind Manzi he's behind Baldessari um He's not getting a chance over any of those guys, especially when there are other fast Australians in the pipelines elsewhere. They're good riders, all of them. Just, you know, there's a reason they didn't make MotoGP. Yeah, yeah. And the same is now true for Bulliga. Yes. Well done. Thank you. Very hypocritical of me to criticize pronunciation from anybody in this episode. So we have got time for the question B. We're going to give you a slightly bonus length episode as an apology for being a little bit late this week, which is due to the amount of illness among the team. You know, the, the, we have enough voices among three of us to actually record a coherent podcast now. So uh, we'll bring this to you a couple of days later than we usually we usually release. So the question B we put out was, uh, who should have got a MotoGP chance in the last 10 years? Who didn't? And we had loads of responses for this as well. This was a very fun one. Uh, Top Rack Razgat to the Oakley did get mentioned here a few times as well i'm going to disqualify him because despite the skepticism yeah his story his story's not done this could still, still this could still happen yet and we also had quite a few shouts for riders who you reckoned had had such unfairly rubbish MotoGP chances that they count as having been snubbed and they may as well have never got there. Remy Gardner got several shouts for that. Uh, Val's favourite, Ike Lecchionia. Oh, right. Leave it in, Johnny. Ike Lecchionia. <laughs> And Sam Lowe's, after his uh, unhappy time at Aprilia, they all cropped up in that category of having had such a bad time in MotoGP that they were effectively snubbed. Um, I'm going to disqualify them from from this debate because they, they did get MotoGP seasons, even if they didn't turn out. 
as they would have hoped. Let's focus this on people who have never been on the MotoGP grid at all and are highly unlikely to ever get there now. Um, I say that I'm going to allow a couple of exceptions for people who've appeared a little bit, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, the main one is six time. Oh, sorry. Right. Go on, Val. What's your objection? Yeah, I, I no, I just I want to add to the disqualified list. I'm so bummed by what happened to Tom Luthi in MotoGP. It just stinks. Uh, that whole thing was just so sad. After so much good service in 250cc and Moto2, that was just deeply, deeply unfortunate and sad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, for me, that was an example. And, and you know, not his, I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. I'm not saying this was his fault, but he was just at that second tier level too long to make a MotoGP switch ever. Yeah. Like it was going to properly work when he finally got there. Yeah. It, I, I, I'm not saying that's, that's justice, but when you've been in, I, I, I haven't looked at the stats, but I believe it's like seven or eight years in Moto2 slash 250. I'm exaggerating that. It's a long time. Long. Yeah, very long time. Very long time. And it was it was too late. And I mean, the equipment wasn't obviously not up to scratch. Also, clearly he didn't do well. And the way he did suggest that there wasn't going to be a long-term future then in MotoGP, but it's still, you know, it's a shame. Maybe a few years earlier, maybe something. But he did get there, yeah. so he doesn't count for this conversation. Sam Lowe's also disqualified, also, yeah. Yes, yeah, we've disqualified him. Yeah, yeah. he's done. <laughs> anyway, back to someone who, um, well, has been on the MotoGP grade. This is an exception. So Drake from Ontario, Cosman from Romania, and Dan from North Yorkshire, all nominated six-time World Superbike champion Jonathan Ray, who did race in MotoGP very briefly, two races in 2012 on a Repsol Honda as a Casey Stoner stand-in. Why didn't that lead to more? Is this a travesty, Simon? Top rack syndrome. Um, it didn't lead to more because the opportunities that were presented to Jonathan Ray afterwards were not the offers that he wanted to take. Um, and as a result, he he never made it when he absolutely should have. Um, we know that there was offers presented to him that would have been good stepping stones into MotoGP, but there seems to have always been a bit of the same thing as Top Rack, where because he was winning World Superbike titles, he thought that he should come from a factory bike to a factory bike. And unfortunately, when you're an unknown quantity to a large extent in the MotoGP paddock, it's just not how it works. Um, you have to be prepared to step back to step forwards. Uh, the perfect example of that, of course, always being top, um, Ben Spies, who went into World Superbikes, won the championship in dominant form as a rookie, and then went to MotoGP as a satellite rider. Um, left behind his factory Yamaha and went on to a satellite bike and turned it into what should have been a really good career until injury you know, snuck up on him and, and he just got pulverized into bits by various terrible crashes. The other uh, example that's even more relevant to Jonathan Ray because they came up through the entire system together is Cal Crutchlow, who was in World Superbikes with Jonathan, was at a similar level to Jonathan, who took what looked to be a significant pay cut and demotion to go to Tech 3 Yamaha at a time when they weren't very good in MotoGP and turned it into you know a long MotoGP career with multiple wins and multiple years spent in factory machinery. And I think Jonathan will always know that there would have been MotoGP opportunities for him if he had really wanted to be a MotoGP rider, but I think he's going to be content in the long run that he did what he did and, you know, became a six-time world superbike champion instead. Yeah, I mean, like, could 
Johnny Ray have done as well as Cal? I don't know, potentially, maybe. Uh, who knows, maybe better, maybe worse. Uh, the MotoGP stand and rounds were really good. V very obviously really good. Um, but it's like, is it worth a slightly long shot of heroics there versus what he did achieve in World Superbikes? I mean, he's going to end his World Superbikes career as the greatest rider in probably the history of that series, I imagine. Uh, I don't really... I mean, you know, some people will say Fogarty, I imagine, Carl Fogarty, but statistically, certainly, Johnny Ray has got a very good case and the season that he put together when he weathered the storm of Alibro Batista coming in and winning, was it 10, 12 in a row? And Ray just absolutely monstering it to finish second every single time so that when the balancing of performance changed and when Bautista started hitting snags, Ray was there to just completely break the the title race and actually secure an early coronation is incredible is honestly one of the finest things i've ever seen in motorbike racing he, there's a chance he never reaches that sort of in-series immortality in another gp is that worth trading away for a few years at pramac maybe maybe not is that worth trading away for a factory motor gp ride probably but maybe not i don't know he's done okay so like it, it it's a what if, and we lost out for not seeing it. And we also lost out because uh, Johnny Rayless World Superbike seasons would have been more interesting to watch because he absolutely stomped yeah. that poor championship <laughs> for years. But he probably didn't lose out now. It's, it's an issue of timing as well, wasn't it? Like, I agree that his, his two Repsol Honda rides were really impressive. But then this is 2012. So what are the options? If it's not a factory seat, the satellite teams aren't getting much factory kit at that point. And then there's a bunch of CRT bikes. I, I do actually, I don't think you should portray this as Ray having snubbed a load of really good MotoGP offers. I don't think they were there. And if, if he had done that standing ride a couple of years later, when actually half the grid was competitive, then it could have been a really different story. From what I understand, there was a Pramac offer around the time they went with Hianone. And there was a forward Yamaha offer that eventually went to, uh, I can't remember if it was Loris Baz or Alicia Spagaro, but turned out to be a surprisingly good bike because it was supposed to be a CRT machine. And then suddenly, oh, wait, no, it's just a Yamaha M1 in a slightly different <laughs> fairing. Um, so th there were offers there that I think would have given him a chance to work his way into good seats. Um, but, you know, they didn't take them, so... We can we can only speculate. I'm gonna and that allow another little exception. Cosman from Romania also nominated Michael van der Mark, and Cosman said he did well when he replaced Jonas Folger at Tech Three with zero testing on a MotoGP bike, uh, which, which I'd agree with. Simon, what do you reckon? Uh, I think Michael van der Mark's too tall to ever have been a fast MotoGP rider. That that's you know, we we hear people like Danilo Petrucci complaining about his height being a disadvantage, and Luca Marini complaining about his height being a disadvantage, and then you've got. Vandermark, who's like five or six centimeters taller again. Um, yeah, I think that would never have worked. I think of MotoGP height charts in terms of basically a big picture of Loris Baz. How does how does Vandermark compare height-wise to Baz? Similar, I think. Off the top of my head, just trying to like imagine the two of them standing next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> a quick Google suggests high 170s, low 180s. Hard to be sure without you know measuring tape. Uh, I think that also... It is worth also bringing up, I think Chaz Davies, somebody also suggested at some point, which is basically a very similar story, also extremely tall, uh, even taller, I think. Um, yeah, in terms of Vandermark, honestly, 
this is no offense to Michael Vandermark, who's, you know, he's got himself a pretty great World Superbike career, done quite well for himself. Don't think he was that good in the MotoGP stand-in, right? I, I, I'm sorry, not like, not, we have to get this guy on the grid full-time good. You know, stand-in rides, obviously, you can't really judge him very well because, you know, levels of preparation, levels of notice, how much similar machinery you've ridden in the past, all that sort of thing. But I, I don't remember it being the sort of the sort of outings that made me go, well, he definitely should be on the grid sooner or later. But maybe, you know, maybe I'm misremembering it because it was, it was a bit before I started properly working in MotoGP. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe I'm wrong. 2017, yeah. you, you were around. No, yeah, no, I was, I was... Okay. So either I'm denigrating myself or... Yeah, it's that. I'm doing that. It, it, it was no better or no worse than the stand-in rider, rides by his then-teammate Alex Marquez. I think we, they were they were pretty much on a similar level, so that Alex Marquez did MotoGP. Sorry, 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 Alex Lowe's, uh, Alex Lowe's, Alex Lowe's broke my brain there for a second. Yeah. Again, great audio content. Listeners should have seen my face there. I lost touch with reality for <laughs> a good ten seconds there. It's okay. You're you're not the one that just said Alex Marquez when they met Alex Lowe's. It's it's brothers in MotoGP. That's the problem here. Um, yeah, that you know they. His his performances weren't substantially different. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to people who definitely do actually qualify for this list. I, I really like this this first suggestion. Robert from Austria uh, doesn't just say like snubs talent web. He says lost hero of the decade, which I, I love the phrasing, and nominates Nico Tirol, saying he was so good in one two five cc in the fights with Polis Bagaro and Mark Marquez, and of course Tirol was eventually champion there. And his twenty eleven title came ahead of Johan Zarco and Maverick Vinales, which is pretty good set of people to beat, albeit with more experience in the category than both at that point by by a bit certainly so yeah nico tarol and i can't i don't where is nico tarol now actually someone i haven't heard about from, he was in moto two for moto e for a spell wasn't he but i can't remember what he's done recently he's working with aspar as a rider coach yeah Guevara, isn't it wasn't he there wasn't he there when Guevara was celebrating a moto three title there was a fake Guevara. yeah fake Guevara was nico <laughs> yeah Tarol, exactly that's it? exactly exactly he was <laughs> He was the fake Guevara. Yeah, yeah, So did we miss out with him not getting on the MotoGP grid? <sighs> Again, is another one of those riders who spent a long time doing everything, if that makes sense. Um, he spent a long time winning a Moto uh, 125 title and then went to Moto 2 and spent a long time not winning a title. So I kind of understand why he, it, he didn't get the chances that he got in the end. Um, yeah, it's, it's understandable that there wasn't, uh, more of an opportunity there when there really should have been, I guess. Uh, this is a very emphatic one next. I, I, I love the detail this one's gone into. This is from Mike Falcone or Mike Falcone. Let's go get Falcone. Uh, who in the last 10 years deserves a Grand Prix ride? hundred percent Cameron Bobier. A test or substitute role at the very least. Look at the revolving door that Yamaha was last year and the year before. The man won them five national championships. This is on the American scene, Moto to America. And he never even got to test the GP bike. Darren Binder got a year contract and Cam couldn't even try the Yamaha once. Even when Frankie was out, Gerloff got to ride it. Cam won multiple championships over Garrett Gerloff. I could go on and on. So frustrating. And then Mike throws in, Yamaha sucks. 
<laughs> I love Jesus. Mike's passion. So, Mike, thank you. That was absolutely brilliant. Cameron Bobier has has yeah. You look at it on paper, you go, well, he's done. Two, he's only just done two years at Moto Two. He's got a chance. But no, you know, he is now heading back to America again and, and given up on Grand Prix racing. Should he have got a Grand Prix gig, Simon? I mean, the fact that he's gone back to national racing and left behind World Championship racing and stated that the reason for it is partly because of his homesickness makes me think that there was never going to be a long-term career for him in MotoGP. Um, maybe he should have got a chance to test, yeah, but what would have come from it? You know, if you don't have a happy rider, you don't have a fast rider, and if he was going to be, you know, perpetually homesick as a factory MotoGP rider, then he wasn't going to perform. Um, and that is the harsh reality of it. He's also very much up against it in his age because he spent too long in America winning national championships in the first place and came into Moto2 as like a 27-year-old rookie. Yeah, he's, he's 30 now, I think, so. Yeah. So he was, you know, he, his chances were slim from the beginning. And the reason that he never got a chance to test anything as well, which is the other irony of it, is that he was a Moto2 rider. Yeah. And you can parachute in a world superbike rider to do a replacement ride, but you can't parachute in someone who's already ca- contracted to race on that weekend. Yeah, <laughs> such is life, unfortunately. Garrett Gerloff caught a caught a stray there in that in that message, and I I just like to say, I thought Gerloff's Friday only appearance as a MotoGP rider was actually really good, and I I wish he saw it that weekend because I really wanted to know. Uh, there was like there were. The signs in Friday practice, they were pretty interesting. There was genuinely something quite exciting going on there. And then, of course, Valentino Rossi returned from, from COVID, uh, which he is well entitled to do. But it, you know, it would have been interesting to see what, what Gerloff could have done. And also, it is interesting who the next American MotoGP rider is going to be, because is it going to be 40-year-old Joe Roberts in 10 years? Maybe. Gerloff, you know, just to draw a line under that, Gerloff's subsequent sort of brief foray at the front of World Superbikes and then trailing off into satellite BMW territory means that his chances of being a MotoGP rider full-time are now gone. Um, Joe Roberts is someone who, you know, Joe Roberts should have been America's next MotoGP rider if he hadn't turned down in Aprilia because he thought it was crap and then it almost won a championship, um, which is going to be one of the biggest regrets in MotoGP history. It's up there with Danny Kent turning down a Pramac ride directly after winning Moto3 oh. uh, to go and, and be crap in Moto2 instead. Um, the, the only rider that has any hope, I think, of being on the MotoGP grid in the foreseeable future from America is Sean Dillon Kelly, but he really needs to get his act together and start performing a bit better in Moto2. He doesn't need to be winning championships in Moto2 to get a MotoGP ride, but he needs to be consistently a lot further forward. Um, and beyond that, the next American rider in MotoGP is probably going to come from the American Talent Cup that's like started last year. It's, it's a long way away. To just say, first of all, I'm absolutely massively bummed that I was not the first one to bring up the three-year offer Danny Kent apparently got from Pramac, according to Pramac. After so the, the first person to bring up Danny Kent was was James from Ireland, one of our listeners. So let's do the let's do the Danny Kent section. James nominated Danny as someone who should have been on the MotoGP grid. He had the offer. A three-year offer is is the way is what Pramac said about it. Like I I don't know. I've never seen the contract offer, so I can't tell you. But three years. The thing is. 
did Johnny Kent's Moto2 exploit suggest that MotoGP would have been a step too far and that those three years would not have been so enjoyable is a question. And I think it is the same question as with Joe Roberts and Aprilia. I know that Aprilia clearly felt quite, you know, quite snubbed and offended in a good way that so many Moto2 riders went thanks but no thanks to its to its bike. But beyond the fact of the bike's competitiveness, which obviously improved massively, there's also the factor of stepping in next to Alicia Spargo to get stomped repeatedly over and over again every race weekend for the full season, which, you know, that ends your career. That just ends your career immediately. And then you have to pick up the pieces and find yourself new employment and you ask basically any of Alicia's teammates as to how fun they found that experience um except for Maverick right now uh but yeah in terms of you know, in terms of Kent uh you don't win Moto3 without talent so kudos to him he'll have that forever and I it sounds like he's finally figured out a long a long-term home for himself in the British Superbike paddock but I Look, maybe it's fine that he turned out that Primark offer. Like, I'm not much of the of the thinking that like if you have a great opportunity, you have to take it. Sometimes you're not ready. Sometimes it's it's beyond you. Maybe Danny Kent had plenty of self awareness to know that it wouldn't have worked. I'm just going to throw it in there to reinforce my earlier point that he wasn't a part Honda rider won a Moto Three Championship and then never went any further. Um, the product of that team, given their success, is so hit and miss. And he's also uh, revisiting another former point. He's also another rider uh, cut early by Speed Up, the, the Moto2 team that we've mentioned as being quite ruthless. And his teammate that season, the one who was beating him so conclusively, was one Fabio Quartararo, who parlayed oh, yeah. that burst of Speed Up form into becoming the best rider on the MotoGP grid. <laughs> this, is, this is a weird ladder, and there are weird things happening there every year. It's mad. It really is. So James's other suggestion uh, from his list, and thank you, James, for for your email. There was loads to dig into in there. His other suggestion is Dominique Agurta, who uh, actually turned up on a Suzuki for a test last year, didn't he? A, a very strange point in his career. Did MotoGP miss out by not having Agurta on the grid? No. Um, he spent a long time in Moto2 and, and never achieved anything that would suggest that he deserved a, a competitive MotoGP ride. Um, he's found a good home in production racing and is doing really well and winning championship left, championships left, right and centre. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think we missed out not seeing him in a MotoGP grid. I think we missed out on not seeing him race the Suzuki last year. That just would have been fun. Uh, instead, oh, yeah, for a left field out of the blue, how has this guy, guy got on the grid now? MotoGP yeah. question. Yeah, absolutely. I Instead, I think but... Jean Mir tried to return an Aragon yeah. and couldn't quite hack it. And that probably wasn't particularly fruitful to, to begin with. So seeing Agriture that weekend would have been okay. Although nobody's doing anything meaningful in terms of results, just stepping on a MotoGP bike out of nowhere. And in terms of the general career, if Tom Luthie couldn't cut it, I don't think Dominic Agriture had much of a chance. But congratulations to him on the current career he's managed to find for himself. Was it two titles last year, World Supersport and Moto E? Also World Supersport the year before and almost Moto E. Moto E for a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Until, yeah. yeah. until he knocked off Jordi Torres, who yeah. was then awarded the title. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's worked out fine for Dominic Agriture. 
got three more to go in our what we're now calling lost hero of the decade section which i really like <laughs> um, let's play another clip this is dan from north yorkshire dan thank you for the, the four minute long voice note you sent us which we, we can't use all of it for time reasons but you mentioned so many riders who i hope you've enjoyed the discussion of during this episode because i think we've covered everybody who you flagged up for both categories uh, but your stuff on lorenzo baldassari was particularly interesting so here are your thoughts on baldassari and then we'll see what val and simon reckon off memory, I think it was 2017, 2018, maybe in Moto 2, um, where there was, you know, Banyaya, Mia, Oliveira, Binder, um, Alex Marquez, Luca Marini, Quattararo. They were all in the Moto 2 class. Um, and um, I think he, he finished, he was up there constantly, and I think he finished top five, top six, something like that. And he definitely finished ahead of, 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 of a few of those. And obviously, they're all. Um, you know, three of them are now MotoGP world champions. So, um, yeah, I think he, I think he was unfortunate to to miss out on on taking that next step. Um, and he's the same age as Pecco. So, so yeah. So Baldassari, Simon, Val, what do you reckon? Uh, I mean, he had the the chance to make his MotoGP case, and he only made it very briefly and very intermittently. Yeah, you know, like. We like all of these guys. We like anyone who becomes a star for just a little bit in Moto3 and Moto2. And it, it shows they have, like, this is an insanely competitive couple of series. And they're, you know, it's great. And they're very talented. But MotoGP ain't made of rubber. There's only so many rides. And we already have insane churn. I, I don't think we missed out on Lorenzo Baldessari necessarily. And I think he's done just fine for himself where he's ending up now, which is he is on the world superbike grid already, right? Yeah. Super sport. Uh, oh, he's still super sport. Yeah, yeah. but he's, so, he's yeah. in that he's in that pipeline, so he'll be fine. He's doing fine. Yeah, and you know I think that given how strong his season was very briefly, and then how absolutely terrible it was, like Celestino Vietti should be looking at that and being quite grateful that he's still going to ride and a future in the Moto2 paddock, and people are still talking about him having a MotoGP chance for the future, because there was a while where, where Baldessari was going to be the next factory MotoGP rider, because his start to that season, that one season, was so good, and then it just all fell apart. But you have to bring consistency as well as talent. And we, you know, we also had the Tsuta Nagashima win the opener and yeah. win the championship for a little bit, and also, like, that's probably a similar type of story for uh vietti i think i think we're still quite a ways away there because it's a different number of seasons i guess if that makes sense um yeah, yeah. also i should say baltari was on the world superbike grid you've gaslit me he oh. was there in oh, Philip Island. Sorry, he's, yeah he's doing the one of the yamaha satellites indeed they've, they've got quite right. an impressive array of talent there They've got Agerter, they've got Gardner, they've got Baldessari, and they've got Lacatelli with uh, Andrea Lacatelli with uh, Top Rackers getting in the factory team. Just, just a really good lineup. It's really cool. Let's, let's stick around in World Superbike package world and go on to John from Stafford's suggestion. He says, I'd have loved to have seen John McPhee given the chance in the highest class as he's proved for the podium in his first race in World Supersport. So John McPhee was someone who was around the Grand Prix Bill for a long time in, in Moto3 how should he have got higher than he was given chance to in, in MotoGP land I mean John is 
So I know that, that Val will Val will laugh at this because he knows that I'm a John McPhee super fan and I can say we're already smirking about it. <laughs> um, McPhee is a writer who was not necessarily cut out for Moto3 because he's someone that's fast and smooth. He's not someone that particularly enjoys the, you know, let's throw 17 people into a corner at once and see who's standing in the exit of Moto3. Um, I'm not going to say he deserved a MotoGP chance, but he absolutely deserved the multiple Moto2 chances that were stolen away from him due to politics and funding and various, you know, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes in the paddock. Um, Whether or not he would have had a MotoGP chance would have depended on whether or not there was a need for a Brit, whether or not he was performing well, um, multiple factors. But, you know, without seeing what would have been possible beyond a single weekend in, in Moto2, um, it's hard to say. Yeah, no, I mean, I, for, for all my smirking, I, I concur. It would have been interesting to see John McPhee on the Moto2 grid. To say anything of his MotoGP suitability beyond that is, I mean, just don't have enough enough data. And when you do the time in Moto3 than he did, it, it basically, it, it ends your chances. And that's, you know, that's that. If, I think if if he'd ended up on the Patronus Moto Two bike that uh, he contractually should have had for twenty one, we'd be having a different conversation right now. But he didn't. So let's do one more from the listeners, and I agree with this one. And it's an exception again because this guy did get a season, but in CRT land, and it was so CRT ish. I'd actually forgotten it had even happened until we were, we were doing the episode prep. So Jlil10146 on Twitter suggested Mattia Passini, who I think is a real mystery career because it's someone who I was actually really excited by in 125s. And then it did, it's not just that his MotoGP chance only happened in an uncompetitive CRT way. He didn't really kick on particularly when he got to 250 slash Moto2 either. And I also realized today he turned up in the European Le Mans series, raced in the LMP3 class last year, which I had no idea had, had even happened. So... Simon, what, what went wrong for Pasini? Someone who I, I thought, okay, we've said early in the episode, Moto2, sorry, Moto3 form, or 125 as it was then, doesn't necessarily tell you anything, but I just thought he was a really interesting talent back then. Pasini's problem, I think, was always going to be that his setup on a bike is different from everyone else's, and MotoGP likes a certain amount of conformity in terms of the grid. Uh, when he was a kid, Piscini had a really bad motocross accident. I'm not sure if everyone's aware of this. And as a result, his his controls are the other way around because he's got a weaker uh, right arm. So he breaks with his left hand. And that has always singled him out as being different and being someone that is maybe not got all the strengths of of everyone else, basically. Because at the end of the day, the brake is on the right side of the bike for a reason. Um, and that has always kind of, I think, worked against him, even though people have been accepting that it's obviously not a problem of his own making. And he's done exceptional things considering it. Like, there is absolutely no question in that. But uh, yeah, I think that that maybe was always the the thing that counted against him. I, I didn't like. I didn't get to see Pasini in his prime much, really. I got to see him in some Moto Two cameos. Uh, pretty recently, which genuinely were really impressive. Uh, under no impression that there isn't, there there was clearly a huge talent there. Like really, really. So everything I've heard and everything I've seen on the on the result sheet suggests that that yeah that is something we probably missed out on. 
So a few minutes ago, when we listened to Dan from North Yorkshire's clip, Simon was like, hang on, there's a real travesty here. Someone who should have been a lost hero of the decade has not been mentioned. And we were like, Simon, don't tell us. Leave it as a, as a surprise. So final shout for the episode, Simon, who else should have been in MotoGP in the last decade didn't get the chance? Johnny, can you edit in a drum roll? <laughs> I genuinely can't believe we've got this far through a list of people who should have had a Moto GP chance and didn't without anyone mentioning the most successful Moto 3 rider of all time, Romano Fanati. Oh, oh yeah. well, that's because there was too many really <laughs> obvious reasons why he didn't get a Moto GP chance. But yeah, I see your point. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but there's plenty of other guys in the past who uh, have done things that were quite dumb as well and have still ended up with a Moto GP chance. Um, I I I think Fanati certainly after coming back from the uh, the most spectacular of his rather spectacular mistakes um, after coming back from the incident with Manzi, uh, he came back a different character. He came back a uh, a lot quieter, a lot calmer. We never saw any of the the sort of on track fury that we saw beforehand. But I think that despite being repentant, being apologetic and learning from his mistakes, he was never really given a, a fair chance after that. Um, and, you know, was was yet another victim of the speed up. We've seen you for four races. We're sacking, you know, strategy that they seem to adopt quite regularly. Um, he was, you know, the guy couldn't achieve anything without being instantly berated by fans uh, for what he did five years before. Um, I just think it's a bit unfair on him. Um, you know, we, we've, I've seen people on social media who both believe that Romano Fanati should never be allowed to ride a motorbike again, despite being incredibly apologetic for what he did, simultaneously believing that it's a travesty that Andrea Iannone was banned for four years for being an unrepentant drug cheat. <laughs> and, you know, which is worse, really? In, in the grand scheme of things. Um, yeah, I, I think Fanati, I think the paddock didn't forgive quick enough. Uh, I should say, again, looking at the draft table from last year, uh, Simon is going to bat for one of his picks because he did, he spent a round I three actually pick don't remember on Romano Fanati alongside there you go. Acosta, Locatelli and Gerloff, whereas I went for four Spaniards. Anyway, um, the Fanati story is a little bit sad more recently because it, makes me wonder what I really think about sports and how I really feel about the inherent cruelty of our business and the, you know, the whole Game of Thrones nature of it that gets referenced so often. Um, let's, let's do a Formula One thing because, you know, this has been long enough. So if you're listening still, you will forgive me a Formula One comparison. Um, after four races, was it, in 2016, uh, Red Bull binned Daniel Kvyat to replace him with Max Verstappen. Um, the same happened with Fanati and Alonso Lopez at speed up last year in Moto2. In both cases, it was a absolutely gru brutal, grueling move, you know, very hard to stomach and you feel really bad for the guy who got replaced. And also it was a massive upgrade in both cases. In Alonso Lopez, speed up immediately got the best rider on that year's Moto2, Moto2 grid, I still think. So it's tough. I, uh, I think that the fact that Alonso Lopez even you know with his built-in 
Moto2 experience, whatever, the fact that he proved that much better right away pretty much tells me, I think, what I need to know about Romano Fanati's MotoGP potential. The thing with Fanati for me is, okay, there's the the Manzi incident. Uh, For any listeners who weren't around at the time, that was effectively him trying to grab another rider at full speed on, on a straight in what would have been just a catastrophically awful thing had the crash unfolded from there. So yeah, absolutely awful. Like you say, he was repentant. I do like a redemption story. For me as well, before that, there were times early on when he was involved in VR46 when Fanate looked absolutely amazing. And then a lot of time we were like, where's he gone? What's what's going on with this? And I think that... And then he threw a TV remote controller to just Lucci's head and got psyched. That's the one. Yeah, that also didn't didn't help. And when you add the inconsistency and the incidents and, and everything else, it's like, okay, this, this wasn't going to get to MotoGP. But yeah, a great talent there. But I think... Overall, I think what this long episode has taught us and all these people we tried to judge and these lost heroes of the decade is that basically, thanks to Fabio Quartararo, any attempt to assess anybody's career until they get to MotoGP is completely redundant. But listeners, you've been keen enough to give us the chance to try and um, hopefully we've lived up to your expectations. This is this is a bold thing to say 90 minutes into a talent assessment episode. <laughs> like, it's I, all I, meaningless. But yeah. Well, <laughs> we tried. We've tried. <laughs> Next week, testing is going to resume again so we can move back on to immediate 2023 topics rather than uh, 2024 beyond and the past and we're being to actually genuinely meaningful things. We would like your questions for next week's episode about the upcoming MotoGP season and what to expect from test to... Anything you want to ask us about form so far in the test, what the next test will show us, what we expect to happen both at the test when the season starts, send us a voice note to podcasts at the-race.com and, uh, or send us an email with your if you'd rather type your thoughts and say them into a microphone and we'll do our best. If you want TV show recommendations, also go for it, obviously. No shortage of that for many of us. I've ruined the outro for yeah. Matt completely. Sorry, right. I did my best to ruin the episode repeatedly by failing to talk coherently earlier on. So you're, you're welcome, Val. Uh, we're going to leave producer Johnny to try to make sense of this episode. And Val and Simon should get back to being poorly and celebrating a birthday. So thank you very much, listeners, for your time. Thank you so much for the submissions as well. It was absolutely brilliant listening to and reading through those. We really, really appreciate it. We will see you this time next week, or hopefully a little bit sooner if everyone's healthier, for more about the 2023 MotoGP build-up. The Athletic.